As some of you may know, we're actually in the final days right now uh, leading up to the annual three-month retreat that's been held every year here at IMS uh, since its beginning back in the 70s, so for decades now. Uh, the tradition of which actually dates back thousands of years to the time of the Buddha when he recommended uh, to his followers, the monks, the nuns, uh, the lay people, if they were able to take a period of three months for a silent retreat uh, out of the year to have time to really intensively work on their practice during the rainy period, uh, the monsoon season in Asia, which is not a good time for traveling. It's kind of a natural time to, to settle down and do this kind of work. So it's, it's been inspiring to me during our time here to know that we're kind of priming the space <laughs> for this group of people just like us that are going to come and do the same practice for six or 12 weeks, you know, really going in deep. And in the time of the Buddha, many of the monks and the nuns, if they were anywhere in the vicinity of where the Buddha was residing at the time, would go to him in advance of the three-month retreat in order to get uh, instructions for their meditation practice to carry them through the time that they were going to be in retreat when they often didn't have uh, a teacher to work with during that time. They would get their instructions and then they'd kind of be off running on their own for the next few months. And because the Buddha was such a skillful teacher, um, it's said that he had this ability to just look at a person and see into the quality of their heart and mind and just know exactly what meditation instructions would be the perfect uh, antidote for their particular history, their particular personality, their particular challenges. And he'd be able to give each one just the instructions that they needed. So he would tell one person, you know, please just be mindful of the breath. He would tell another person, you know, please pay mostly attention to the sensations in your body, all of the sensations in your body. He'd tell another person, please just focus on uh, the feelings that arise, the pleasant, unpleasant, neutral feelings that arise. He'd tell another person, uh, just pay attention to your thoughts, focus on those, and so on. And so in this way, he would give each uh, yogi, each meditator, just exactly the instructions that they needed. You know, if only he was here today, <laughs> things would be a lot easier. But it happened that one year there was a particularly large group of monks, you know, let's say 500, just to kind of pick a large number, a lot of them, who didn't have any particular place to go to for the period of the rains retreat. You know, they didn't have like a home monastery or a vihara, someplace where they, they lived when they weren't traveling around. So these kind of itinerant monks all got together and decided to go off as a group in search of a place to spend the period of the rains retreat together. So they set off walking, going north from the Ganges Plain, away from kind of the cities and the development and the hustle and bustle that was in that area, off towards the great mountains to the north. And they eventually came upon a beautiful lake at the foot of the mountains. And it's said that the lake was so clear and pure that it sparkled like a polished jewel and that it was surrounded around its banks by the stretch of soft, clean sand that shimmered in the sunlight like a sheet of silver. And beyond the sand rose a cool, dense forest filled with towering old trees. And the monks knew immediately that they had found the right spot for their retreat. So the next morning they got up and they walked back to kind of the closest village that they had passed on their way to this place. And the people were very excited in the village when they saw this group of 500 of the Buddhist followers arriving, you know, looking so serene, so composed, so elegant, um, because they had never had a group of 
spiritual seekers like this arrive in their midst. They were in a relatively remote area. And they're also very eager to have a chance to hear the teachings from this community while they were in residence there nearby. So they told the monks, you know, please stay on here by this lake as our guests and we'll provide for all your needs. We'll provide you with food and uh, any clothing you might need, medicines. We'll provide for your requisites so that you can practice happily. And the monks agreed very gladly. And they went off back to the forest by the lake. And each monk selected one of the old trees to sit under as their meditation place for the duration of the retreat to have the shelter of the, the great trees. So that soon there was hardly a tree in this old forest that didn't have a monk sitting at its base among the roots. Now, as it happened, this was actually a very special forest. It was special not only for its physical beauty, but it also had a great supernatural beauty. And a community of devas had been living there, also among these great trees, for a very long time. Devas being, kind of in the Buddhist cosmology, celestial beings or spirits, kind of nature spirits. And this tribe of of devas had uh, built a grand celestial mansion in this forest, using the bases of those trees, those big trunks, as kind of the foundation. And then up above it, they had built this beautiful, uh, fine material mansion where they lived. So that there was a deva palace suspended up in the sky above the forest, but none of these monks at this point had supernormal vision, so they didn't know it was there. They couldn't see it. The devas, of course, though, could see the monks down there below. And just like the people in the village, they too became very excited, very joyful. Because they could see you know, how sincere these monks were, how really dedicated they were, how determined. They were meditating so diligently in accordance with just those instructions that the Buddha had given them each. And according to tradition, devas are kind of, um, they're kind of party animals. (laughs) It's said that they have a fine material existence, meaning that they have these very light, beautiful, graceful bodies that hardly ever experience physical pain. And as a result, they're kind of flighty. They're kind of superficial. They mostly just like to kind of sing and dance and whoop it up. But they also, it's also said that they appreciate uh, kind of the energy of spiritual people, and especially of yogis, dedicated yogis, and that they like to kind of vicariously bask in the aura of, you know, serenity and uh, awareness and kindness that yogis tend to, to generate. But it wouldn't be respectful for uh, the devas to be, you know, up there in their celestial mansion over the treetops having a big party while all these monks are, you know, sitting at the bases trying to attain enlightenment. So the devas all came down, down to the ground. And they just kind of stood around respectfully, you know, the the monks couldn't see them, they just kind of stood around. Ah, ah, how nice, you know, admiring the monks. Oh, how peaceful they look, you know, how lovely they are. You know, just thinking that the monks would be be there maybe a few days, maybe a week, something like that. And wasn't it kind of a nice break from their party to have this community there? But a day passed. And another day passed, and a week passed, and another week passed, and the monks didn't leave. (laughs) And the devas started to get impatient. Because as wonderful as these monks were, the devas really just wanted to get back to their party by that point. And the monks were just kind of cramping their style. So after this had been going on for a while, the devas all got together to discuss the situation. And eventually they, they decided that the best strategy would just be to make this forest 
particularly uncomfortable, particularly unappealing to these monks, so that they would leave. So they started to do things like appearing to the monks in the evening as ghosts flitting among the trees. Uh, They started to make spooky noises in the night or in the dawn. They started to, um, a few of them were very creative and even got together and started to generate these just awful foul smells around the forest. So they were really trying their best. And after a while, you know, sure enough, (laughs) the monks began to become uncomfortable. They began to grow pale with fright, some of them seeing these, you know, uh, images flitting around the forest. And they stopped being able to concentrate on the Buddha's instructions. And eventually they couldn't even just keep up their basic mindfulness. They were so distracted, so preoccupied with the strange visions, you know, and the, the strange noises and all those awful smells. So the monks all got together to discuss the situation. And finally, the elder monk in the group said, you know, let's go talk to the Buddha. Surely he will know what we should do. And the rest agreed, and they all set off at once. So after another long walk, this time rather a sad one, the monks arrived again to where the Buddha was staying. And the elder monk bowed to the Buddha and told him about their experiences and what had been going on in the forest by the lake at the foot of the great trees. And he asked, you know, should we find a more suitable place for meditation, for our practice? Have we just chosen the wrong spot? So the Buddha, with his uh, inner eye, surveyed the whole of India. And he found that there was no other place that these particular monks could attain enlightenment, but the very spot that they had chosen there by the lake. So he told them, monks, please return to the same spot. It is by far the best place for your retreat. At which the monks kind of squirmed a little bit. (laughs) That wasn't really the answer that they had wanted. They didn't really want to go back into that uh, situation, that environment that they'd been practicing in. It was not comfortable. And the Buddha saw them squirming and he said to them, don't be afraid. The trouble that you're having is being caused by the local devas. I'll give you a teaching, and if you chant the sutta and meditate on its meaning, then the devas will leave you in peace. And this is what he said to them. This is what should be done by those who are skilled in goodness and who know the path of peace. Let them be able and upright, straightforward and gentle in speech, humble and not conceited, contented and easily satisfied, wishing in gladness and in safety, may all beings be at ease. Whatever living beings there may be, whether they are weak or strong, omitting none, the great or the mighty, the medium short or small, the seen and the unseen, those living near and far away, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any being in any state, Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, so with a boundless heart should one cherish all living beings, radiating kindness over the entire world, spreading upward to the skies and downward to the depths, outward and unbounded, freed from animosity and ill will. The Buddha told the monks to keep this teaching in mind at all times, and it would be of great benefit to them. 
So the monks, somewhat hesitantly, returned to their secluded valley, reciting this teaching as they went so that they could memorize it and keep it in mind at all times. And in the Pali, it's very beautiful. Karaniyam atakusalena yantam santam padam abhisamecha sako ujucha sujucha suvachocha samudu anatimani. And I'm like that, this whole chant in Pali not just reciting it by rote, not just repeating the words, but really taking in the meaning as they went, letting it sink in, this message of universal goodwill and friendliness. And little by little, lo and behold, their fears melted away, their worries melted away, and their hearts became soft and warm and open. Meanwhile, back in the forest, the devas were up again in their celestial mansion, you know, having a really raucous party. They felt like they had a lot of lost time to make up for. This was a particularly wild one. But as the monks got closer to the forest, they stopped their singing and their dancing, and they put down their instruments, and they pricked up their ears because they could hear this beautiful metta chant, these beautiful wishes that the monks were generating. And they could feel all of the love and the goodwill that was radiating from this group of 500 monks. This group was generating so much metta that the, the devas' fine material bodies became permeated with it, saturated. And the devas all thought, wow, you know, <laughs> this looks like the same group of monks that were here before, but they're so much more beautiful, you know, something's really happened to them. And they were so filled with inspiration and faith and appreciation that they just all spontaneously appeared in beautiful human forms around the lake. And they received the monks with great kindness and great respect. And they magically summoned up a a wonderful meal and clean water to offer to the monks. And they invited them to stay in the forest as their guests for the rest of their retreat and meditate under their trees without any hesitation or fear. And so they did. And by the end of the retreat, every one of those 500 monks had become a fully enlightened being, an arahant. And the devas were also filled with joy and delight. So this is the traditional um, explanation, kind of the backstory on where this uh, teaching and practice of metta, of unconditional friendliness and loving-kindness is said to come from. And I find it interesting that it was originally conceived of as a protective practice, as a a guard against fear and anxiety. The Dalai Lama has said that the more you're motivated by love, the more fearless and free your action will be. And we may really feel this quality, this characteristic of metta here on retreat, you know, when we bring in the loving-kindness practice during the afternoons or, or if we're using it at other, at other times during the day, that it has this quality of refuge, of shelter, of protection, that it has this quality to soften and warm the heart so that we can find the strength to go on, we can find the courage to face our demons, our devas, the, so that we can connect more fully and deeply 
and venture back forth kind of into the wilderness of our own hearts and minds and, you know, hopefully uh, make some peace with the, the troublesome devas that we may find there. And the benefits of metta are really immense and varied. There's a whole slew of them. It's an incredibly powerful practice, an incredibly powerful teaching. Just in our everyday life, you know, metta has this ability to really smooth and facilitate all of our social interactions. You know, there's no uh, interaction that we can uh, encounter with another person where a quality of open-heartedness, a quality of friendliness is not going to pave the way, you know, whatever the the situation may be. There's no situation where it's not going to be helpful in some way. And it's said that metta has this uh, ability to, uh, that it warms the heart, that it it melts the heart, that it has the the capacity to make the heart uh, more fluid, more sticky, (laughs) so that, that our hearts can adhere to someone else's, so that we can make that connection and stick to each other, so that it we're not kind of dry and uh, more like Teflon. And when we're in this place of greater connection, when things are going more smoothly, then that also then allows us to be able to see more clearly what's needed in the situation, You know, whether it's an easy situation or a difficult situation, when there's greater accord, when there's greater camaraderie, when there's greater connection, then it's easier to see more clearly what's needed there. So this is one of the aspects of the benefits of metta practice. And then again, through our formal meditation, you know, you may be experiencing some of the the benefits of metta here, that it has the ability to relieve stress, to alleviate some of our worries and fears, our anxiety, that it is able to help us to cultivate a calmer mind, a calmer heart, greater concentration, greater happiness, greater joy. And in its most powerful forms, metta can even be a springboard or a platform to the deepest realization, to awakening evening, even as it was for all of these 500 monks. This word metta is derived from uh, a root in Pali uh, that means friend comes from the word for friend. So really the most accurate translation of that word is just simply friendliness. Uh, Much like many of our our modern words, it comes from the same root, if anybody's linguistically inclined, you know, as words like amigo or amicable. Um, Those all come from the the same common ancestor. But the Buddha took this somewhat, you know, commonplace term and, you know, as in many of his teachings, gave it a much more profound significance. So not just friendliness, but unconditional friendliness, universal friendliness, universal goodwill. This beautiful state of mind that really looks on all beings, all of life, with an even-handed friendliness and kindness and caring. For those that are dearest to us and for those that are least dear to us, <laughs> for those that are nearest to us and for those that, whose lives don't even touch ours any, in any direct way. Uh, for those that are most important to us and those that maybe you know are not of any importance to us. And it's important to remember that metta, in its essence, is a mind state. It's a mood or a feeling or an emotion, as we might call it in English. It's an experience that happens you know, in the present moment, like everything else that's true, that's real. So it's not just a philosophy or an attitude, an opinion that we take on in life, that we should love our neighbor as we do ourselves. Uh, 
It's not an idea or an ideal that we may hold in the mind, that we may think through and decide on. Although those may come out of or be inspired by the experience of metta. Until we've actually had the the moment-to-moment experience of what metta feels like in the heart, then those kinds of ideals and philosophies can really just only be theoretical. They can really only be abstract. They can really only just be ideas and philosophies. It's also important to remember that although unconditional goodwill may seem like kind of a lofty pie-in-the-sky aspiration to hold, something that's maybe not within our reach, it really actually is a perfectly ordinary human emotion and it's accessible to all of us if we value it, if we cultivate it, if we recognize it. So we can consider this the case of unconditional ill will, which is also a perfectly ordinary, normal human emotion that is accessible to all of us, you know, if we cultivate it. So we all know that we have those times when we just wake up on the wrong side of the bed in the morning, you know, we have some interaction or some uh, situation we get caught in that's particularly unpleasant, it just puts us in a bad mood, puts us in an irritable, you know, just easily annoyed frame of mind. And then, you know, maybe we walk down the hall, we go on to the next thing that we're doing in our day, and you know, whoever comes along, or sometimes whatever comes along, gets to be the unlucky recipient of that mood that we're in, even though, you know, they didn't have anything to do with the arising of that mood. They just happened to cross our path when that's the state that we're in, and that's the state that we respond to them out of. This is the way things work. You know, we've all had that experience. And metta actually operates exactly the same way. That's why it doesn't really matter so much who we choose as our metta subject when we're doing the formal meditation. It doesn't really matter so much. You know, it needs to be somebody that we can arouse that feeling of metta towards. But beyond that, it doesn't you know, particularly matter. It doesn't need to be the person closest to us, most intimate with us. This is why we pursue the practice you know, along the path of least resistance in the easiest possible way, not pushing, not forcing the heart. We're just trying to cultivate that mood of metta, that mental state, that atmosphere in the heart and the mind. Then once we're in that place of more free-flowing friendliness, more, more open caring, unconditional caring, then, you know, again, whoever or whatever crosses our path is going to be the recipient of that. They're going to fall within that energetic field that we're in in that moment, and that's going to color how we respond to them. This really... Um, hit me like a ton of bricks when I first kind of got this about metta. It was in my relationship with my dear teacher, uh, Sayada Upandita, one of the great Burmese masters that Annie and I had practiced with. And um, Upandita could never remember my English name. He just never got it <laughs> for, all, you know, for the number of years that I was practicing very regularly with him. And he never really asked me much about my personal life. You know, he, he really didn't know much about, you know, he knew I was American. Uh, he knew I was married. Uh, he seemed to be curious whether I was Jewish or not, which is kind of considered good karma because there's so many Jewish practitioners in this tradition. And that was about the extent of it, you know. And I don't know if he even retained any of that information. And for a long time, I had the feeling that, you know, he didn't really know or even really care who I was in that conventional sense, which, you know, in our world, getting to know someone, uh, having a relationship with someone usually involves all this sharing of history, sharing of stories, all of that kind of thing. And none of that ever went on with him. You know, it just was, wasn't that kind of relationship. 
And yet every time that I spoke with him, I had such a palpable sense of his kindness towards me, such a palpable sense of his caring in our interactions. Um, this quality of attention, you know, just really giving me his full and wholehearted attention in these brief interviews that we had, just as we do here. And then one day, for no particular reason that I can identify, I was having, you know, in another, just one of these brief interactions with him, and it just kind of hit me. It's just because I'm here. (laughs) That's all it is. It's just because I'm here. His kindness, his, his compassion, it's not based on any sense of personal connection. It's not, it doesn't have anything to do with my personal story or what I'm doing in life. It doesn't have anything to do with him liking me or thinking I'm a good yogi or having particular plans for me. Or even the fact that he remembers who I am. <laughs> you know, It's just because I'm here in front of him. You know, I'm just this living being who's kind of appeared in his world, seeking his help. And just because I'm here, he cares. You know, it's really, totally unconditional friendliness and goodwill. And when this really sank in, it was revolutionary. You know, I'd never encountered anything like this, at least not consciously. I'd never really taken in this kind of energy from another person. So then I got curious to investigate this metta thing. That was kind of the the starting point of really my engagement with the metta practice. Um, I'd never been particularly enthusiastic about it before that. You know, it had always seemed kind of, kind of forced, kind of artificial, kind of contrived, maybe a little sappy, a little syrupy, you know, all this, oh, may you be happy, you know. That wasn't really my thing, at least not at that point <laughs> in my life. But when I started to look with interest, I found that that quality was really there in me too. You know, obviously not nearly to the strength that um, Sayadaw had developed it, but that it was there too in my palette. It was something that was the, in, within the range of possibilities that if I looked, it did pop up here and there. It was in there. And once we realize it, once we really take that in, that that potential is in us, it's really hard not to want to explore it. It's really hard not to want to cultivate it even more. So it's not that we need to manufacture some kind of exalted mind state that we don't already have, that we don't already know. You know, we experience many moments of metta already, all the time, but we may not notice them, just simply because uh, our attention hasn't been directed to them. We're not sure what to look for. We haven't paid attention. So the practice of metta is about gaining that familiarity with what does unconditional friendliness feel like? What does loving kindness really feel like? Coming to be able to recognize it, coming to appreciate its benefits, and then doing as much as we can to encourage it to arise more and more. And for most of us, we do need to get more familiar with metta. You know, we, it's easy to assume that we know what love is. Um, but that word can mean so many different things. It's really easy to be confused about what is love? What are the different flavors of love? You know, each one of us, when we say that word, can mean very different things. And even just for one of us, what we mean by that word can change dramatically over time or in different circumstances. And there are many of um, what we call these near enemies, states of attachment, states of craving that are very close to love, that are very close to kindness, that are very close to caring. States of, you know, maybe sentimentality or longing or sensuality. It's very easy if we don't look closely and carefully to confuse these with real unconditional friendliness. 
So metta practice for most of us becomes this kind of long process of elimination. You know, along the way of cultivating metta, we have the chance and really it's necessary for us to kind of uh, rule out all of the things that aren't metta, to become familiar too with everything that's not unconditional friendliness, all of the other things that are possible in relation to each other that are not really wholesome. And, then, and in this way, we kind of gradually arrive at, okay, what is, what's left? What is that feeling of metta? Once we uh, pare away all of the attachment, all of the aversion, all of the stickiness, all of the messiness. This beautiful quality of unconditional goodwill also has three friends that come with it. The first one is karuna, or compassion. The second one is mudita, or appreciative joy. The third one is upekka, or equanimity. And together with metta, these four beautiful qualities are called the brahma-viharas, which is a Pali term that can be translated as uh, divine abidings or heavenly abodes. Because it's said that when any one of these is strong in us, then it's as if we were already living in a heaven realm. We are, we're already in heaven. If there's love that's strong in the heart, if there's compassion that's strong in the heart, if there's gratitude and appreciation that's strong in the heart, if there's equanimity that's strong in the heart, then this is like being in heaven. There's a story from the Pali Canon about a young Brahmin from the highest priestly caste of the Buddha's time named Subha who came to visit the Buddha and put kind of a whole slew of philosophical questions to him relating to the traditional Brahmanic teachings of the time, which he was very involved with, very enmeshed in in his studies. And one of the things that he asked was this. He said, Master Gotama, I have heard that the recluse Gotama teaches the path to the company of Brahma. It would be good if the Master Gotama would teach me the path to the company of Brahma. Brahma being you know, the highest god and kind of the, the cosmology of that tradition of the time. So Supa was essentially asking the Buddha, you know, how can I get to heaven? And the Buddha, you know, again, in his typically pragmatic, down-to-earth way, you know, gave Supa this response. You know, he said, here's how to get to heaven. Cultivate a mind of boundless loving-kindness. Cultivate a mind of boundless compassion. Cultivate a mind of boundless appreciative joy. Cultivate a mind of boundless equanimity. This is the way to get to the realm of Brahma, to arrive at heaven. And the Buddha's followers have been doing that ever since, you know, for thousands of years now. And now we're doing it here, you know, every afternoon as a continuation of this tradition. And it's not really that each of these four states of the mind and heart is a separate experience. Each one is really imbued with the the flavor, with the scent of the others. It's more like they're different facets of just a single truth. The truth of a heart that's awake, the truth of a heart that's responsive, the truth of the wise heart, which is like a jewel with many facets. Different facets show themselves in different lights or depending on which angle we're looking at them from. So the foundation for all four of the Brahma-viharas is metta. That's the starting point. This feeling of unconditional goodwill, universal friendliness, 
the un- unconditional wish for well-being, both for ourselves and for others. That's the basis for all of these. Then, when we encounter a situation of suffering from within that perspective of metta, from within that place of genuine uh, good, wish- good wishing, then it naturally flowers and evolves into compassion, into the sense of deep connection with the suffering, and the very spontaneous and natural wish to do whatever we can to alleviate the suffering, whatever's possible. On the other hand, when we encounter uh, a situation of happiness from this viewpoint of metta, then it naturally flowers into mudita, this appreciative joy that's grateful for the happiness that has arisen. Again, with a deep sense of connection, this deep sense of appreciation and gratitude, and also, again, a wish to support that happiness, to support that goodness in whatever way we can to help it to continue and to grow. And then again, on, on the third hand, <laughs> when we encounter the mix in life, the mix of pleasure and pain, the mix of happiness and sadness, the mix of suffering and joy in life, from this perspective of metta, then we naturally arrive at a place of equanimity, which again is another state that feels a deep connection with the truth of things, but one that recognizes and accepts that this is the way things are in this moment. That for all of us it's like this. There's pleasure, there's pain, there's good, there's bad, there's joy, there's sorrow, and remains balanced and even and unshakable in the face of that. And just like with metta, these three other Brahma-viharas are also moods, they're mental states that we can uh, encourage, that we can cultivate. They're very ordinary states of mind, very natural human emotions that are available to all of us. And they're all qualities that we can clarify and strengthen through our practice, through awareness, through intention, in very much the same way as we do with the quality of metta. And in fact, there are parallel practices to the one that we've been doing in the afternoon for metta, There are parallel practices that uh, use the same basic technique, the same basic approach, but with slightly different different individuals, slightly different phrases to cultivate these other Brahma-viharas as well. And they're typically done in that order, beginning with metta, moving on to compassion, then to appreciative joy, and then finally to equanimity. And it's said that these four beautiful states of mind taken as a group together encompass all of the possible wholesome emotions that we can experience in our interpersonal relationships. Everything that's good in the way that we relate with each other falls within uh, kind of the umbrella of the Brahma-viharas. And this can be a really interesting exploration to take out into the world with us. At those times when we're feeling really connected, when we're feeling particularly kind, loving, when we're feeling uh, particularly joyful or balanced in some interaction, uh, can we kind of turn and look back at the mind just for a moment? You know, it doesn't have to be a, a prolonged or a, a particularly concentrated meditation, but just to see if we can catch a moment or two of what is the quality of the mind at those times? What is the quality of the heart? Can we notice these four beautiful states in operation? Can we get a sense of their texture and their feel so that they become more and more easy to recognize, more and more easy to encourage and cultivate? And conversely, at those times when we're feeling really disconnected, when we're feeling particularly aversive or particularly grasping, 
particularly off balance in some relationship or interaction, can we turn the mind at those times and get a sense of what's going on in the heart? See that these wholesome emotions are not there. Maybe find that instead uh, one or more of the hindrances are present, which those are really the source of all of our suffering in our relationships, are those hindrances that Annie spoke about last night. This way of practicing in daily life has really become an important touchstone for me since I became a mother. You know, if I can turn and just get a glimpse of the quality of my mind and heart, you know, if I can feel that sense of connection, that there's that basic uh, caring, openness, that sense of uh, lightness and buoyancy and presence that comes with the, the Brahma Viharas, then I know I'm pretty much on track. You know, it's a good litmus to just check in periodically. Where's the heart? And again, vice versa, you know, if I, if I take a look at my heart and it's clear that those Brahma Viharas is not what's going on, uh, that, the, that the heart is constricted, that it's tight, that it feels cut off, that it feels frozen, then I know that I need to really proceed with caution in whatever's going on because I don't have that safety net of the Brahma Viharas. I'm not in a wholesome place. I need to proceed with, with care so that I don't do something that I regret. I had a very vivid illustration of this just last night. After we left, after the late sitting last night, after doing our chanting, uh, I left uh, the retreat center here and went back to the staff housing where I've been staying with my family during the retreat. And I found my daughter there, my little seven-year-old, very happy, very excited, kind of bouncing around uh, with some big news to share with me, which was that she had sat down and read her first book all by herself, which is a wonderful achievement. And she was very excited about it. You know, she had a lot to tell me about it. She wanted to read the book for me and kind of demonstrate. (laughs) And at first I was a little skeptical, actually. That was my first reaction because we've been working on reading for a while and it's been a little slow to come. So I wasn't sure if she was really reading or if she was maybe just kind of reciting, you know, a book that she had memorized. Um, But we sat down and we started reading and lo and behold, she was really doing it. And the first reaction of the heart was a huge wave of relief. She's going to get it. It's okay. It's going to be okay. You know, we're not looking at years of learning problems and all sorts of interventions. It's, it's all going to be okay. You know, which is a perfectly natural response as a parent. But also, you know, as again, you know, as I just kind of checked in with the heart, it was really clear that that was not a particularly healthy or wholesome reaction. You know, that in fact it was very narcissistic. You know, it was about me. You know, what did this achievement of hers mean to me? How was it going to bear on my life? You know, how was it going to be re- relevant for me and my? you know, ease and satisfaction in life. So that way I've kind of passed through and we're still sitting there reading and she's doing really good with it. Something's really clicked for her. So then the next thing that arose for me was pride. <laughs> as Annie, you know, talked about last night. Oh, I've really done a good job. You know, I've done my job as a parent. I've done it. You know, she's got it. You know, aren't, aren't I a great parent? Aren't, aren't I a great teacher? Um, you know, which just as Annie mentioned last night is just when we connect with it, just a really awful feeling. <laughs> A feeling of pride, you know, it's so, you know, self-aggrandizing, you know, it's also so narcissistic, you know, and, and that one was just so clearly an inappropriate response that I had to actually laugh a little bit, you know, it actually, you know, brought up some humor because it's just so clearly off the mark. So that kind of passed through pretty quickly. So then I'm just sitting here, sitting there reading with her and things calmed down a little bit after that, you know, she snuggled up against me 
and she's reading me this book, and it's just so cute, and, you know, she's my daughter, so the, the sound of her little voice, you know, reading to me is just so delightful, so pleasant, you know, and her little soft, warm body against me there, you know, it's just this picture of just domestic bliss, <laughs> you know, this is what we sign on for when we take up parenting, you know, this is it. Um, and yet, you know, within that, checking in with the heart again, I could see, oh, you know, this is actually sensual enjoyment. You know, I'm enjoying, enjoying the feel of her body, enjoying the feel, the sound of her voice, enjoying kind of the, the, the gratification of just how, how nice she is and how gratifying to the senses she is. So that too, you know, also off the mark, even though somebody looking at us, you know, from the outside might see, yeah, that's love. That's what love is, you know. This is the picture of, you know, mother and daughter together. Um, but, in, but in the heart, you know, if I was honest with myself, I could see, no, it was still off the mark. So I was just mindful of that for quite a while, and that kind of continued on. It was difficult to let go of that because it was satisfying, it was gratifying. But at a certain point, as we went along, you know, there was a time when she just turned and she looked up at me with her little face, and I looked down at her, you know, and I just kind of really took in this picture of, you know, her, her bright eyes, and I just kind of got a sense of her joy and her sense of accomplishment and, and her, her, her wholesome pride, you know, in her development. Um, the excitement of this new uh, door opening to her. And then at that point, then my, my preoccupation with myself and my own enjoyment with the situ- in the situation, then it just melted away. And there was just that pure moment of mudita, a really genuine appreciative joy of, of flowing out rather than taking in, you know, really being there present with her and her joy and her happiness, recognizing the goodness of this for her and um, letting go of the preoccupation with everything that had to do with it around myself. And when we finally arrive at that kind of place of connection, um, then it really feels like a tuning fork being stuck, being struck. You know, there's a sense of resonance that like, yeah, there we are, we've, we've hit the groove. You know, we really can feel it when we fall into that place where we've let go of the obsession with ourselves and everything having to do with me. And we're really there and present with the other person. And, you know, it wasn't that I was in a deep meditative state as all all this was going on. You know, I was just sitting there with her. I was listening to her. We were chatting a little bit back and forth, you know, now and then. Just, you know, living my life. But maintaining that thread of connection with, okay, what's happening now? What's happening now? What's happening now? Not trying to push any of it away, but just noticing. Being clear about the times when unwholesome things, either, you know, more or less obvious were going on, and then being clear also about the times when those fell away, and I did, was really able to fall into a place of wholesome connection. The Dalai Lama has this great quote, which I love. Uh, He said, if I'm only happy for myself, many fewer chances for happiness. If I'm happy when good things happen to other people, billions more chances for happiness. (laughs) That's just so true. When we're just caught up in our own little worlds, then our world, worlds are very small. You know, when we, can, when we can really open and connect with others, then the possibilities become much greater. I had another very powerful lesson in the Brahma Viharas. This was very early on in my practice, kind of after this uh, time that I'd spent with Upandita when I was just really starting to take seriously um, the metta practice and try to really bring it into my daily life. And a good friend came to me one day, uh, just shortly after I'd gotten back from a retreat, with some really uh, terrible news, (laughs) like a really big one. Um, She had done something really 
unskillful, like a big, big one. And there were going to be just awful repercussions from this. And I remember so clearly, you know, sitting there and listening to her. And my first reaction was just rage. You know, I was so angry with her, you know, that she had gotten herself into this mess and she was going to drag me into it. And there were going to be weeks, months, possibly years of kind of muddling through this and all the ramifications of it. But because I was more aware at that point, kind of in the wake of a period of retreat, and because I had made this very conscious commitment to really work on cultivating metta in my life, I really took in that quality of anger. You know, again, I could really see that very clearly in that moment. You know, just again, in the midst of our conversation, you know, I didn't need to go into a deep state of meditation to notice this. It was all too clear. And I could see, you know, again, just how self-involved this reaction was, how narcissistic, how inappropriate, how unhealthy. And so I just kind of paused in the middle of the conversation. You know, I was still kind of listening to her, but I was also really, you know, putting some significant attention to just kind of tuning into the heart and watching what was unfolding there. You know, I didn't want to speak out of my anger. You know, I had enough uh, presence of mind to know that that would be a bad idea, (laughs) you know, that all sorts of things could come out of that anger that I would regret later. So I wanted, if if possible, to kind of let this wave of anger move through and see what was going to come next. And my friend at some point noticed that, you know, I wasn't quite as responsive (laughs) as I would normally be in a conversation especially in the midst of this kind of big news. So she just kind of paused too. And she just kind of looked up at me. She's shorter than I am. (laughs) And again, I had this moment where I just looked into her face, you know, and I kind of saw the dark circles around her eyes, which weren't usually there. And I kind of saw, you know, the the haggard expression and the, the, you know, the worried look in her face. And it just really hit me in that moment. You know, she is in so much pain. You know, I just really took that in just for a moment. And I just said to her, you know, you look really tired. (laughs) That was all I said. Nothing earth-shattering, but it came from a place of really genuine compassion, really recognizing her pain and being there, just right with her in that pain. And this is probably one of the deepest moments of human connection that I've ever experienced in my life, really, to this day. And, you know, she broke down, you know, that kind of opened the, walls, the, the floodgates for her, and I broke down, and, you know, we sat, and we cried, and we hugged each other, and we talked more. And, you know, this one moment that we had shared, you know, it didn't, it didn't change that still, you know, she and I, along with her, were kind of stuck in this awful situation. Um, but it did change the equation of how we approached it. You know, for sure it, had cha- it changed how I held it. Um, the whole process as it unfolded. And I think it really made a difference to her and my ability to, to show up for her with genuine compassion, you know, after that moment of connection. So the Brahma Viharas are, are a great gift to us in this way in our relationships. Um, but they're not helpful just in interpersonal situations, but also in intrapersonal situations, you know, with what goes on within us between ourselves and ourselves. So we can apply them not just to to other beings in external situations, but also with what goes in ourselves, what what goes on within ourselves, to any experience, to any moment. And we have a chance to explore this here on retreat. So can we greet painful moments with compassion? Can we greet pleasant moments with appreciation and gratitude? Can we hold everything that comes with the 
a general uh, attitude of kindness and goodwill and friendliness? And can we also accept whatever comes our way, that mix of pleasure and pain, of happiness and sadness, in this larger container of equanimity, which is able to embrace it all with balance? This is a poem that we we often read here. It's kind of part of the the modern canon of Western Vipassana because it just captures uh, the Dharma so clearly. It's by Rumi. It's called The Guest House. This being human is a guest house. Every morning, a new arrival. A joy, a depression, a meanness. Some momentary awareness comes as an unexpected visitor. Welcome and entertain them all even if they're a crowd of sorrows who violently sweep your house empty of its furniture. Still treat each guest honorably. He may be clearing you out for some new delight. The dark thought, the shame, the malice. Meet them at the door laughing and invite them in. Be grateful for whatever comes, because each has been sent as a guide from beyond. So when we approach our lives from this perspective of the Brahma Viharas, these wholesome emotions, then we really come to see that everyone and everything is ripe with the potential for connection, for awakening. And I've come to see over the years that these, these Brahma Viharas really aren't just you know, hallmark sentiments you know, that we give lift service to. And they're not heavy or syrupy or melodramatic. You know, it's quite the opposite. When they really uh, take hold of us, the feeling of them is very light, very buoyant, very refreshing. Even compassion, when it meets suffering with loving kindness and care, has this uplifting and joyful quality. It's really quite surprising. It's a bit of a paradox that we find. Uh, It's not joy in the suffering, obviously. It's not happiness that the suffering is happening. But there's this deeper joy that can transcend the suffering the joy of connection, the joy of really being there with another person in the truth of how things are. So the Brahma Viharas give us energy to engage with others and engage with our lives in a healthy way without getting burned out. They actually give us the energy that we need to carry on, to persevere, so that we can offer the best that we have to those around us. And these beautiful states of mind and heart are also at the same time one of the deepest and most satisfying sources of happiness that's available to us just on a day-to-day basis. And the Buddha said that it's through these very states of mind that we should seek our worldly happiness. This is the appropriate place to look for happiness and satisfaction in just kind of a mundane way in our lives. As he told Subha, you know, these are the route to heaven, these states of mind. This is the way to heaven, and not just through more and more and more sense pleasure and the constant pursuit of it, but through living a life that's really deeply connected with others and deeply connected with our own wise hearts. In this tradition, we don't really distinguish between you know, work that we do for our own good and on the spiritual path and work that we do for others' good. We don't make that distinction. Because the deep truth is really, you know, ultimately what we find is that they're the same thing. You know, our capacity for friendliness and compassion and appreciation and equanimity. These are qualities that are going to lead us 
to live lives that are of the most good for those around us, that are going to benefit those around us as much as possible. And at the same time, those, those same very qualities are what's best for ourselves and for our own happiness and contentment in life. So in helping ourselves, we help others and vice versa. There's really no need to, to separate out the two to create some division there. And ultimately what we find is that that's not possible anyway. So I'll just end with uh, another one of these poems that's become kind of part of the, the modern canon here. This is a poem called Kindness by Naomi Shihab Nye from her book Words Under Words. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. Feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you counted and carefully saved, all this must go, so you know how desolate the landscape can be between the regions of kindness. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating maize and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you, how he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness is the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow is the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows and you see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense anymore, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is you I have been looking for, and then goes with you everywhere, like a shadow or a friend. So let's just sit for a moment. So we'll have some walking now, and then we'll uh, regather for just uh, a short sitting and the chanting again. <laughs> 